By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks Focus on Finance. In today's special episode, ahead of the annual UN Climate Conference, COP26, in Glasgow, November 1st to 12th, we're looking at what's driving financial institutions to decarbonize or reduce exposure to carbon-intensive industries and at the opportunities and risks involved for banks, insurers, and asset managers when they do so. Moody's has found that worldwide financial institutions have 22 trillion U.S. dollars in exposure to carbon-intensive industries through their assets and investments. So there's lots of room for more decarbonization, and financial institutions have a big role to play. I'll be speaking with analysts Lev Dorf from the banking team in Moscow, Brandon Holmes from the insurance team based in London, and Vanessa Robert from the asset management team who's joining from Paris. Lev, Brandon, Vanessa, welcome to Focus on Finance. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hi, Daniel. Happy to join. Lev, let's start with you. What's driving decarbonization of bank portfolios? I would say that for banks, decarbonization is mainly driven by uh, increasing challenges and risks from their exposures to carbon-intensive industries. And I can briefly explain what that means. There are a few ways in which those exposures can affect banks' creditworthiness. First, banks could be lending to industries that have high physical risk of losses from climate change. For example, real estate developers that are usually exposed to extreme weather events like uh, hurricanes or wildfires that can lead to borrowers defaulting on their banking loans. Second, banks would also lend to industries that are exposed to the transition risk of climate change, being a subject to new rules and regulations which could potentially disrupt their business models and uh, reduce their ability to service and repay debt. So in both cases, you can get loan defaults. And basically, this is kind of risk that banks want to minimize by decarbonizing their portfolios. Right. I see. Makes sense. And what about insurance companies and asset managers? Brandon and Vanessa, you'd say the drivers of decarbonization are pretty similar for those? Yes, that's right. So for insurers, similar to banks, there's physical risks related to their assets, but also the risk of needing to pay large claims to policyholders after a hurricane or or wildfire, for example, both natural events with a connection to climate change. And second, as the world transitions to a low-carbon future, there's risk to the corporate bonds insurers hold in large size in their investment portfolios. So insurers hold investments in, in carbon-intensive industries like coal or fossil fuels, for example, that are likely to lose value over time as governments and companies shift over to renewable, clean energy sources. Yeah, coal is actually a really good example of what's driving decarbonization for insurance companies. Right. Coal is a good example of insurers taking some quite decisive steps to reduce and eventually eliminate investment and underwriting exposure to a sector. In fact, many insurers now have very little or no exposure to coal industries. So initially led by the large European insurers, a number of insurers globally have now taken steps to reduce invested asset exposure to coal, often through divestment and also to reduce or eliminate underwriting exposure to coal. This was for three main reasons, really. First, coal presents a higher risk of investment loss through becoming stranded than does some other sectors. 
And on the underwriting side, continued support of coal could lead to higher liability risks over time. Second are the reputational and business risks of continued support for the sector. And third, really more generally, was insurers understanding that it is in their long-term best interest to contribute towards decarbonization. So while these efforts, at least, were initially focused on coal, they are spreading to other carbon-intensive sectors, such as oil and gas. So with insurers focused on supporting their clients and investees, which are actively transitioning to low-carbon business models, while pulling support from those that lag behind. And for asset managers, there are two main drivers of decarbonization. First, that's what the customers want. And uh, we observe that more and more investors are asking for greener portfolios. That's true of retail investors and also on a bigger scale, institutional investors such as pension funds are increasingly looking to align their portfolios with the Paris Agreement. And let's be clear, this increased demand for ESG products is not cyclical, but it really reflects an enduring shift in consumer preferences. The second driver comes from the risk high carbon emissions industries can pose in terms of performance. Just to give you an idea of the worst performing companies in the US last year, well, 50% of the bottom 10 stocks were traditional energy companies. So asset managers with huge AUM exposure to carbon intensive sectors are potentially exposed to large declining valuations that can in turn lead to outflows affecting their profitability and financial flexibility. And I would add, Vanessa, that these are also drivers for big insurance companies with with asset management arms. As we know, many large insurers are also asset managers. So there are definitely some common threads in terms of what's driving decarbonization across all financial institutions. But now let's try to dimension the exposure for listeners. Lev, how big in aggregate is banks' exposure to carbon-intensive industries? We look at the long composition of banking sectors from uh, G20 countries and uh, estimated that their total exposure to carbon intensive industries is around 14 trillion US dollars. That's uh, about 19% of their total loan portfolios. Our findings also reveal that emerging market banks have high exposures to carbon intensive industries compared to banks from developed countries. For example, in Russia, India, South Africa, and Mexico, it's about 30% of their total loans compared to an average of 14% for European Union banks. So as you can see, uh, banks' aggregate exposure is quite substantial. And what about the insurance sector's exposure to carbon-intensive industries? To be clear, I mean investments rather than underwriting exposure. How big is that? Yes, so data we have from many of our rated insurers puts this exposure at around $1.8 trillion. That's 13% of their total cash and invested assets. And the distribution of the exposure is, however, quite uneven across insurers, with life insurers generally having more exposure than P&C insurers, and those in North America having higher exposure than their European counterparts. It's also worth noting that insurers' exposure is lower than that of banks and asset managers, and this is largely because insurers hold significant levels of sovereign bonds and cash in their investment portfolio, so corporate exposures are a lower proportion of their overall asset mix. 
And also in contrast to the banking sector, industry-wide data is not readily available for insurers on the sectoral breakouts. But we think our population of rated insurers on which the 13% is based is fairly representative of the sector, which should have similar exposures. Thanks, Brandon. And Vanessa, what about the exposure of asset managers? Well, first, Daniel, let me remind everybody that asset managers are typically managers and not asset owners because they invest on the behalf of their clients. So they usually don't carry the investment risk on their own balance sheet. Now, coming to your question, based on the asset managers' equity portfolios managed for their clients, the exposure to carbon-intensive industries reaches $6.6 trillion. Just to put things into perspective, this is quite substantial because this represents 28% of their total equities holdings. Thanks, Vanessa. That is substantial. And shifting gears now a little bit, Decarbonization helps reduce portfolio and investment risk, but it also has risks. So let's talk about those. Lev, what are the biggest risks of decarbonization for banks? Decarbonization is creating many challenges for banks, for sure. It could require a transformation of their business models, and banks will need to build their climate risk assessment capabilities as well as risk management frameworks. Banks could also face risks to their franchises and will need to find new lending opportunities in the carbon-neutral sectors. In addition, decarbonization increases risk of uh, stranded assets. That's what happens when, uh, let's say, coal plant loses value as coal falls out of favor in the push toward a low-carbon economy. And uh, as a result, decarbonization can reduce the value of banks' collateral. Finally, I'd like to mention that climate-focused regulation and stakeholder pressures uh, will intensify legal and reputational risk for banks as well. So as you can see, decarbonization process could be alone and quite a bumpy road for banks. And Lev, maybe you could say just a little bit about the risks to banks of not decarbonizing their portfolios or of doing so with a big delay. I know the banking team has come out with a scenario analysis that actually puts some figures around what this might mean in terms of losses. Climate change uh, poses significant challenges for banks, uh, despite their modest direct exposures. Moody's analyzed uh, the impact of climate change and transition to low-carbon economy on banks' loan portfolios. As a starting point, we used some scenarios from the European Central Bank, which has conducted its own climate risk stress test on banks. Those scenarios range from an orderly transition away from carbon-intensive industries with no increase in physical risk and little effect on portfolios as a result to a no action at all, leading to a hot house scenario of high physical climate risk. Moody's analysis shows that in the worst hot house climate scenarios, credit losses could be 20% higher than under an orderly climate transition. It's also uh, worth to note that we assume the constant loss given default across all scenarios, but in reality, particularly under high physical risk scenarios, losses could be much higher. And I'd add that for insurance companies, in the worst case scenario we looked at in our research, so the the hothouse scenario let us describe where warming exceeds the 1.5 degrees, this could impact insurers in two main ways. So first, for PNC insurers and reinsurers, more frequent and severe weather events will drive up insurance claim costs and increase volatility in their profits. And while insurers can increase premiums to compensate for this higher risk, there's a limit to what their customers can absorb. 
So over time, some risks will become uninsurable, leading to a, a shrinking revenue pool for insurers. And this is as governments increasingly step in to have to cover or pick up these risks. However, it's also important to point out that we don't expect the hothouse scenario to result in higher physical climate risk or claims relative to the other scenarios until around the mid-century point. And this is because warming and the rise in physical risk we expect over the next 20 to 30 years will be the result of the continued effect of historical emissions. And therefore, the current and future reduction in emissions will only impact warming and physical risks in later time periods. So in summary, we expect to see higher claims for the next 20 to 30 years under all scenarios, and then further deterioration of conditions under the hothouse scenario, but again, only at around the mid-century point. And then the second main risk is latent orderly action to decarbonize and the related negative pressures on economies and GDP growth in this scenario will increase investment risk and possibly lead to higher financial markets volatility and therefore investment losses for insurers, which would be negative for their capitalization profitability. Thanks, Miranden. So really a lot of risks for financial institutions from delayed or uncoordinated disorderly action on climate. And what about opportunities in decarbonization of finance beyond just reducing risk, which is something all financial institutions have to do? What actual new opportunities are there? Lev, let's start with banks. It's a good question, Danielle. Indeed, the transformation to a low carbon economy is creating plenty of financing opportunities for banks because transition to a new carbon-free world will require huge investments in the next three decades. And banks will play an instrumental role in this transformation and will have opportunities to mobilize new capital sources, to develop new products for energy efficiency markets, as an example, and gain exposure to the sectors which will benefit from this transition. For example, the bank's portfolios could be shifting to fast-growing renewable energy sectors or, let's say, green transportation sector or uh, sustainable and regenerative food production and many other industries. As you can see, if transition is prudently managed, banks will benefit a lot from uh, decarbonizing their finance. And Brandon, what are the opportunities of decarbonization for insurers beyond just de-risking their businesses? So we see two main areas of opportunity for insurers. First is that decarbonization presents insurers with an opportunity to strengthen their, their market position. So if they're able to move ahead of peers in developing insurance solutions for the low carbon economy, in, including new technologies such as carbon capture and storage. And then beyond this, we also think that climate change could increase demand for property insurance over the next 20 to 30 years as weather events become more unpredictable and less manageable for society. This could present larger insurers with greater opportunities to provide risk transfer and indeed risk mitigation solutions. Okay. And Vanessa, what about opportunities for asset managers? Well, for asset managers, clearly environmentally friendly investments are a bright spot. Why? Because they have become one of the best performing investment categories. Uh, last year, the top performing U.S. equity sector was clean energy. And if we look at the global sector performance, here again, clean energy was the leading sector performer. And environmentally friendly investments are also a huge AUM growth driver for asset managers because of strong flows into products with ESG mandates. And as a matter of fact, we have observed above average AUM growth among asset managers with a stronger focus in ESG products. 
So launching innovative investment solutions contributing to a low carbon economy is clearly a way for asset managers to generate organic AUM growth and improve their market position, similar to uh, what Brendan was saying about insurers. Vanessa, Brandon, and Lev, thank you all very much for your insights. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to our COP26 special episode. To read any of the reports we've referenced, you can find those by clicking the link for this episode at about.moody's.io slash podcasts. If you'd like to hear more from Moody's on climate, you can also click the link for the newly launched Big Picture podcast, which is all about the effects of severe climate events on economies and how governments and industries are adapting. And please tune in again on Wednesday, October 20 for our next regularly scheduled episode of Focus on Finance.